We think there is an answer to every question. But what if, to every question, there is only another question? What if the question is itself the answer, leading only to the next question and the next? What if our answers are just excuses for leaving the journey too soon? Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of your guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. David has been getting to know his new community, a contradictory world of roughness and sophistication, but also, with each new encounter, he has been getting to know himself as well. This is Chapter 4, Part 2. After weeks of David pestering the parish leadership about how decisions were supposed to be made, a meeting of the church council was finally called, bringing together the elected officials from the two congregations. It was to be an evening meeting held at St. Aidan's in Euclid. When the time came, David put on his clerical collar, gathered up the files he thought he might need, donned his duffel coat, and opened the front door, ready to go. There, standing on the stoop, was Cecil. It wasn't clear whether he'd tried the doorbell or whether he had even intended to. He was standing before the open door as if he'd forgotten what he'd come for and was just waiting for the thought to return. It so startled David that he stepped back, dropping his files, scattering papers across the floor of the front hall. Oh, hi, he stammered. I I didn't know you were there. Cecil watched in silence as David stooped to gather up the papers and stuff them back into the file folders. So, David said, I I was just on my way to a meeting at the church. Cecil looked at him without responding. Then he said, I'll tell you how to get to the blowhole. The blowhole? David asked him, trying to hide his annoyance at this unexpected intrusion. What's the blowhole? Where the tide searches up a narrow cut in the rock, The spray shoots out like the blowhole of a whale, but it's tricky getting to it. I'll tell you how you can find it. Okay, David said, trying to sound interested as he fussed with his files and papers, sorting what went where. Just take the old logging road from the highway outside of town, down near Millstream. It's on Indian land. There's a concrete abutment there now, painted yellow. But you take that road, 
and stay to your left when you get to the fork. Then you've got to find the trail. I don't know if I can tell you how to find the trail. You just keep heading toward the sound of the water. David waited respectfully in case there was more. Cecil seemed to be finished. David bounced the file folders in his arms as if they might be getting heavy. Well, I appreciate that, David said. I do. Thank you very much. David waited another respectful moment. Well, I'd better be going. Take care now, he concluded. Cecil turned and David watched him make his way home, walking stiffly and bow-legged across the uneven ground. Down in the church basement, a circle of wooden stacking chairs was set up around a couple of tables. More than a month had gone by already, and David was anxious to start laying out his plans for his ministry in their midst. David carried with him into this ministry, as he had into each of the two parishes he had served as rector, the advice his father had once given him. Be sure to make your mark wherever you go, and make it early. He knew that six months was not a lot of time to begin with, and that now less than five remained. He knew as well that Bishop Long had told him not to change anything. He chose to interpret this as meaning he could not change anything that now existed, but he could suggest adding a few things. Surely this would not be seen as meddlesome, but rather as earnest. A parish priest or minister, as the case may be, simply doing what was in the best interests of the church. In the East, it was customary for the rector to chair parish meetings, so as the small group gathered, David assumed the role of host, welcoming each one as they made their way down the stairs. Len was the first to arrive, fifty-ish, with a receding buzz cut and intense blue eyes. David had not yet seen him in church. A successful tour operator in Tofino, Len was all business and appeared a little peeved to have to be spending the evening this way. Len brought regrets from someone named Marina, whom David had not yet met. She was St. Columba's treasurer, a yoga instructor and Reiki practitioner, and she would not be coming tonight, he explained, because she had some meeting with the Clackwood Sound Players, a theatrical troupe that performed dramas in the streets and in the schools, mostly around environmental themes of respecting Mother Earth and saving the forests. Len rolled his eyes. Accompanying Len was Marilyn, the other church warden from St. Columbus. David had not met her yet, either. She was a large, open-faced woman in her 70s who ran a successful B&B, which she closed in the off-season so she could travel. She was heading to Tucson, Arizona in a few weeks, she said, to be with her son and his family. Then she would be off on a cruise through the Panama Canal. They would not be seeing much of her over the next few months, she told them without apology. St. Aidan's was represented by Ken, also a stranger to David, a laid-off fish plant worker with dirt under his fingernails and several days' stubble on his chin. He fidgeted like a man in need of a cigarette. Grace was St. Aidan's other church warden, though she also acted as treasurer. Here, at last, was someone David recognized from Sunday mornings. She was easily in her eighties, if not her nineties. She wore a print dress overlaid with a bright yellow ski jacket. Her sturdy shoes rose to her shins like hiking boots. Angling her way sideways down the narrow staircase, feeling out each new step with her foot before lowering her weight, she looked around the room, saw David, and gave him a proud, motherly smile. 
Mimi was there as well as church secretary, which meant that she would be taking the minutes. She too smiled at David as she took her place at the table, a particularly warm smile that seemed to imply a deeper personal friendship than he himself felt existed between them. David was getting ready to formally welcome everyone and start the meeting, so it caught him off guard when Len suddenly took charge, calling the meeting to order. Apparently, Len did not think it necessary to welcome anyone or even to acknowledge David, since everyone had now met him, and he launched into the business at hand without so much as an opening prayer. David readjusted his position on the hard wooden chair so that he leaned forward, looking attentive, but the wind was gone from his sails. He was not used to being an outsider to church business, though for the moment it appeared that he had no choice. Finances were down at St. Columba's, Len reported on behalf of Marina, as was attendance since the last minister left three months ago. But the good news was that expenses were down too, there being no salary to worry about now. The diocese had agreed to pay the expenses of the interim minister— meaning David, of course, but not naming him, with the presbytery throwing something in as well. But that was between the two denominational judicatories, he said. There would be no direct expense for them, which was a good thing. Grace reported similar statistics for St. Aidan's in a lilting Welsh accent, passing around copies of her report, each one laboriously handwritten. It appeared to David that things were not looking very good for either congregation— but this merely prepared the ground for the helpful ideas he was intending to bring to the table. Conversation wandered a bit then, touching on the general downward trend in the local economy. Ken said there were rumors of yet another fish plant closure. Len, talking like a man in the know, countered that he'd heard that a Korean outfit was looking to buy up one of those plants. Ken lowered his eyes as his news was superseded by Len's. Of the two communities, Tofino was the more prosperous, its burgeoning tourist trade more than making up for the recent downturn in the traditional resource-based economy. It was Euclid that was suffering, a town of fishers and loggers that David sometimes heard referred to as the working town, a description that not only irked those in Tofino with its implication that tourism was not real work, but it also belied the reality that few residents of Euclid were actually working. David could feel the tension between the two communities as the church leaders continued to talk around the table, moving on to the coordination of dates for the two congregations' upcoming bazaars. He felt invisible, a stranger from the East parachuted in without any consultation with the parish, whose salary they didn't have to pay, whose life they didn't need to care about, and who would be gone again in a few months anyway. Suddenly, it appeared that Len was wrapping things up. David jumped in, asking if he might have a few minutes on the agenda to talk about some of his plans for his time among them. They looked a little surprised, but agreed, turning now to look at him. All but Len, who began picking up his papers, shuffling them on the table in front of him, then laying them down again. He was ready to go. Well, for one thing, David said, he was concerned that communion was not being offered every week, though of course he understood that this was not the United Church custom. He wondered if he might offer an early morning communion service each week at St. Aidan's for those who missed their weekly communion. 
They looked at each other. They guessed that would be okay. He shouldn't expect many to attend, though. They'd never had an early morning service. What time was he thinking? 7.30, he said to them. Some shook their heads. That would be pretty early. But it was up to him. Whatever. David then wanted to know about the native communities in the area. Was there any back and forth between the reserves and the towns? Why weren't there any native people on the parish list, for instance? Was there any way of bringing the two communities together, of honoring their diverse histories and traditions? There was silence for a moment as the church council members looked at one another, as if perhaps David were inviting them to join him for a stroll out across an open minefield. No, Marilyn offered at last, there probably wasn't a way of bringing the two communities together. David was confused. Marilyn tried to explain. She knew a lot of the native people from the reserves up around Tofino, from Ahauset and from across the Sound at Opitsit, and from Hot Springs Cove. Good people, most of them, she said. But you get them together in a group, as in these land claim negotiations, and they could be quite cagey. You never knew what they were really thinking. The others nodded. A fish farm had its nets cut again last week, Ken said, leaving unspoken the implication that local natives were to blame. And while whites couldn't fish the coho, the natives could fish whatever the hell they wanted, he went on. Then they cooked it on the beach for all to see. It wasn't fair, he said. It was causing bad blood between them. Mimi spoke up, attempting to soften any wrong impressions David might be getting, It wasn't that there was any prejudice, she said. It was more that there were lots of reasons for distrust between whites and natives. And now this whole land claims business had opened up. Well, I think they're lovely people, Grace said with warmth. And they've had such a hard time of it. And such beautiful children. Okay, David realized this was an issue on which he might not be able to make any immediate headway. He decided to move on. Next, he wondered if the churches were doing anything for the displaced loggers and laid-off fish plant workers. He was thinking of a food bank or a clothing depot, something like that. No, the Lions Club gave out hampers at Christmas, Lance said, and people drove into Port Alberni if they needed social services. Ken dropped his head, looking down at his hands. Well, would they mind if he explored the possibilities anyway, David asked. No, they guessed that was all right, they said, if he wanted. And speaking of Christmas, David pushed on. He didn't know what their plans were for the Christmas services. What usually happened? An early Christmas Eve service up at Tofino, they told him, and a midnight service in Euclid. And those would be communion services, of course, he said, nodding in anticipation of their agreement. No, they said. It was always a carol service, a candlelight carol service. Oh, David replied, taken aback. But wasn't communion expected at Christmas, even in the United Church? No, they assured him, it wasn't. They pretty much did what they wanted here anyway. David considered this. He knew he was not supposed to change anything, but he also knew that even in the United Church, communion was the norm at the Church's feasts and festivals, at Christmas and Easter at the very least. Well, he said, He was pretty sure both denominations would want them to offer communion at Christmas, so he wondered if they might allow him to move the carol service ahead to the previous Sunday evening and make the Christmas Eve service at each church a Eucharist. A what? Len asked. A Eucharist, Dave repeated. A service of Holy Communion. 
No one spoke for a few moments. Only Len held David's gaze, drumming his fingers on the table. He looked annoyed. He should do whatever the hell he wanted, Len said finally. But he should be warned. No one would come. The Sunday before Christmas was when the Pacific Rim Arts Society sponsored an annual performance of Handel's Messiah. He couldn't expect to compete with that. Even Tofino people would be driving down to Euclid to see it. It was a big deal here. The meeting ended soon afterward. David took Grace's arm and helped her climb the stairs that led up to the back of the church. It was very nice to have him there, she told him as they negotiated the top steps. She hoped he might even stay a while. They had had so many clergy come and go over the years. They even had a woman once, divorced, she said, but they had all liked her anyway. He was surprised to see that Grace had driven herself to the meeting in a large modern pickup truck. He helped her climb up into the cab. She patted his hand as he let go. Mimi was suddenly at his elbow as he closed the door to Grace's truck. I think communion on Christmas Eve would be lovely, she said. Thank you, Mimi. She smiled up at him. Well, good night then, he said. He turned back to the church. Ken was coming through the doorway. You know the definition of an expert, he asked David. David didn't. A guy in a suit from Toronto with a briefcase, Ken snickered. David permitted himself a small, obliging smile, though there was no doubt that he himself was supposed to be that guy. David said goodnight and made his way home, uncertain what the meeting had accomplished. It was like a hollow ritual, something they did out of habit, comparing hard luck stories but seeking no way through the difficulties. He was sure he would be able to help them out. He even felt a slight rise of excitement as he considered the new challenges that lay before him. It did seem that they were giving him a broad reach to carry the two congregations forward. It was an opportunity to make his mark, just as his father had taught him. David found that after the fact, he was growing intrigued by Cecil's tip about the blowhole. Had Cecil been aware how David had been spending his late afternoons, searching out the shoreline? Or was this something he told every new minister? Whatever, it opened a whole new avenue for exploration. One afternoon, when his visits in Euclid were done, David decided to search out the blowhole for himself. With Cecil's vague instructions in mind, like a tattered pirate's map, he headed up the highway in the Frog Prince. As he neared Millstream, a tiny cluster of houses and properties on the outskirts of town, his attention was caught by two bright yellow concrete abutments, just as Cecil had described. David pulled over and parked the car at the side of the road. The abutments blocked motor entry, to what appeared to be little more than a parting in the roadside brush, but it led him onto a gravel roadbed that was overgrown with slender alders and low cedar saplings. The surrounding forest was young, and he guessed that he was on an old logging road. 
The area had likely been logged some years ago and then left to green up, as the loggers called it. David started out like a bold explorer, trusting that it would become clear what Cecil meant when he told him to stay left when he got to the fork. He listened for the pounding of the ocean, but the rustling of the leaves overhead and the steady padding of his own footsteps were the only sounds that came to his ears. As the trail narrowed and he pressed deeper into the heart of the new growth, he could feel the beating of his heart. He could not help wondering if, through the dense foliage, he was being watched. There were cougars in the area, after all, and bears. This served only to heighten his sense of adventure, but he glanced back over his shoulder just in case. The thrill of doing something potentially dangerous felt new to him. It was something he should have been able to recall from the distant days of his childhood, but he couldn't. He wondered now if he had ever done this sort of thing as a child. Had he ever allowed nature to draw him in like this? Had he ever inhabited the imaginary worlds of childhood, where every new turn in the path presented the possibility of pirates or Indians or perhaps a dragon to slay? It was a shameful admission for someone now in his forties, but the racing of his pulse as he plunged deeper into the woods was a novel experience for him. How much had he missed growing up so quickly in that silent and serious household? Is this what his mother had meant, he asked himself now, about his being her little man? His excitement mounted as he ducked beneath some low-hanging branches and emerged at a sudden turn in the trail. But the sight before him as he rounded the bend caused his breathing to stop and his body to freeze in its tracks— a large pile of dung marred the path directly ahead of him. Beyond it was another. He approached cautiously and knelt for a closer look. He was by no stretch a woodsman, and the thought of his trying to identify a wild animal by its dung was laughable. But he himself was not laughing as he probed the pile with a twig. Blackberries. That could mean only one thing, he thought. Bears. David rose slowly and looked around. The bear scat did not seem to be warm. It might be too late in the season for bears to be up and about. Or, in this part of the world where it hardly ever froze up, did they hibernate at all? Whatever, the fact that bears used this trail was not a comforting thought. He tried to recall the conventional wisdom on what to do if you meet a bear in the wild. Don't climb a tree, he thought, because bears can climb. Or was that cougars? Were you supposed to roll up into a ball and play dead? Or were you supposed to run? He seemed to remember hearing that if you did run, you should run downhill because a bear's smaller front legs would slow him on a downward slope. Or were you supposed to make yourself appear tall and threatening because bears have poor eyesight? He thought he could recall that you should make some noise to alert a bear of your presence, like wearing a hiking bell attached to your hat or whistling while you walked. And always carry a can of bear repellent. But what was that old joke about bears? How can you tell a bear from its scat? A black bear's will have roots and berries. A grizzly's will have hiking bells and bear repellents. Oh, God, he didn't know anything. As he began his retreat... He chose the opposite tack to noise-making. Taking care not to snap any dry twigs underfoot, he stole swiftly back along the narrow path to the safety of the frog prince. He considered himself lucky. He had made it out in one piece. 
but he felt a hint of satisfaction. This brush with danger seemed to him like a rite of passage, a retracing of his steps to manhood. There was a smile on his face as he drove home. Over the next few weeks, David got to work on the goals he set for himself at the church council meeting. He began making inquiries about setting up a food bank, testing out whether this might be a feasible project for the church. He made an appointment to see Murray, Euclid's mayor. David was surprised how professional the mayor appeared. His office was neat and orderly, as was Murray himself, his desk clear of clutter. Plaques and black-framed degrees decorated the wall, along with a bookcase that contained more bound documents than David presently possessed in his own collection. It made him realize that he had brought with him certain prejudices, certain stereotypes about coastal people, and most of them were not flattering. The mayor of a town like Euclid, for instance, should be an auto mechanic or a backhoe operator with a bad haircut and blackened hands— not a university-educated businessman like Murray. But the tables were turned now as he sat opposite Murray's wide desk. It was David who was feeling the lesser of the two men. I don't know, Reverend, Murray was saying. People are pretty proud here. I'm not sure anyone would come to your food bank. And then if they did, you might get taken advantage of. I mean, how would you know if someone was really in need or whether they were just looking for a free handout? He looked directly at David as he spoke. So I don't know, he said again. David wished he had prepared himself better. He wished he had done some research, put something on paper, something more than an idea in his head, however well-intended it was. Do you think perhaps a focus group might help then, he asked Murray. I could call together some people who would know. Social workers, healthcare people, the police— Union representatives for the fish plant workers, Murray added. The Health and Welfare Committee on the Reserve? Sure, you could do that. Well, maybe that's the best way forward then, David concluded. I'll meet with some of these people and see where we go from there. Murray seemed to be stifling a grin. Where you go from there, he corrected him. The town isn't on board with this yet. David felt like he was being humored. What was that definition of an expert again? At least he hadn't brought a briefcase. He would have to prove himself to these people, but that was okay. He could do that. He rose and shook Murray's hand, thanking him for his time. I'll get back to you. Okay, you do that, Murray said as he saw him to the door. With the groundwork now being laid for the church's outreach to the town's material needs, David turned his attention to the church's outreach to its spiritual needs— he began envisaging the Christmas services. In the parlance of church growth experts, he was conceiving the traditional service of lessons and carols as a seeker service, designed specifically to attract newcomers. As he saw it, the evening service on the Sunday before Christmas could be quite beautiful, the church aglow in candlelight, fresh cedar boughs decorating the window ledges, brightened with red bows, and small Christmas trees positioned in the sanctuary, strung with tiny flickering bulbs. It had the potential for making a deep impression on unchurched folks, perhaps even enticing them to venture into the church for one of the regular Sunday morning services. They would sing a standard repertoire of familiar Christmas carols, interspersed with the traditional readings telling the story of the Savior's birth. He would not preach— 
allowing the readings to do the work for him. Instead, perhaps he could find someone who played a flute or a harp, and they could do solo arrangements of seasonal Canadian folk songs. There wouldn't be snow, he guessed, but still, it could be a carol service to remember, a way for him to make his mark. He bounced on the balls of his feet with anticipation. When David next saw the curtains move at Cecil's, he was feeling the self-confidence of a man with a plan and decided to go right over and report on his first foray into the woods in search of the blowhole. Bears, he said solemnly to Cecil when he had been invited in to take a seat at the kitchen table. There was clear evidence of bears on the trail. Cecil was at the stove heating up a battered aluminum coffee pot. He did not seem to be taking an interest. David brushed some toast crumbs from the table into the palm of his hand, but was then unsure what he should do with them. He placed them in a little pile at the table's edge and rubbed his palms together over top of it. He went on, I came across two piles of bear dung. They had berries in them, so that's how I knew. He felt proud of his discovery, as if it might be some sort of initiation rite into West Coast living. Are there grizzlies on the island? he asked Cecil. Grizzlies? Nope, he said. David nodded, relieved. So did you find it? Cecil asked him. What? The blowhole, Cecil said. Well, no, David answered. Perhaps Cecil hadn't understood. I turned back. There were bears on the trail. Bah, Cecil cut in. They wouldn't have hurt you. Too stupid. He smiled the first smile David had seen on his weathered face. The skin folded up at the corners of his mouth and his eyes shone. An empty gap appeared where his two front teeth should have been. So what is it you're supposed to do, Cecil, he asked, if you see a bear. You go your way and let him go his, Cecil said. He's not looking for trouble. David marveled at the nonchalance. Was this West Coast bravado? Just let a bear go its way? Right. Okay, so what about, say, a cougar, he asked him. What do you do if you see a cougar? Cecil was filling two mugs with a thick black liquid David supposed was coffee. He stopped and put the pot down, thinking of something, remembering. Then he picked it up again, finished pouring, and brought the mugs to the table. He didn't offer David any cream or sugar. Now cougars is another matter, Cecil said. If you see a cougar, it's likely because it wants to be seen, which means it's already too late. Too late, David asked. Too late, Cecil repeated. Your supper. David shivered. So what do you do, he asked. Shoot it. Shoot it, David repeated. These here modern fellows say, you see a cougar, you tranquilize it, you cage it, you move it off somewhere, up island or something. Well, that's bullshit. You see a cougar, you shoot it. Cougars don't belong where people are. Nowhere's near. Or... Maybe it's us who don't belong where cougars are, David offered the idea of a city person, which didn't seem to be worthy of a response from Cecil. Cecil sat down at the table. A kid went missing up in a house at one year. I was with the search party that went looking for him. Cecil's small eyes squinted. He seemed to be following the scene again from inside his head. And I was the lucky one, he said. I was the one that found him, or what was left of him, which wasn't much. He'd been dragged off by a cougar. He looked over at David. You see a cougar, you shoot it. 
David found himself imagining the remains of a child torn apart by a cougar. A small rib cage, some bones, some flesh. He shuddered. Cecil had seen this for himself. But bears, Cecil was saying, don't let them stop you. You want to see the blowhole? You got to walk down that trail. David nodded as he reached for his mug. Grasping it in both hands, he sipped at the black liquid. It burnt his tongue. Any flavor having long since been boiled away, replaced now by nothing more than the bitterness of yesterday's reheated coffee grounds. He swallowed hard, wiping his sleeve across his mouth. We were born, born to be wild. We can climb so high. I never want to die. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. Christmas, the song says, is the most wonderful time of the year. It's also the hardest and the loneliest for those who live alone. While preparing all the sparkling, hope-filled Christmas services, David is about to discover the other side of Christmas, the shadow side. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Mystic Cave.